You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 126 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Bruce Damer, and this is the second part of my talk with him. Bruce is a multidisciplinary scientist, designer and author. He collaborates with colleagues developing and testing a new model for the origin of life on Earth and in the design of spacecraft architectures to provide a viable path for expansion of human civilization beyond the Earth. For a more in-depth introduction, check out part 1, episode 125. And you should really listen to the first part before you listen to this one. The first part finished with Bruce mentioning that he was adopted And it is on that note that we begin this second part. So if you are interested in childhood traumas and adoptions, the dangers of flaky conspiracy theories, space exploration, AI, and the archives of Dr. Leary and Tennis McKenna, then sit back and enjoy Dr. Bruce Damer. I want to ask you, you you mentioned you you were adopted. Is there a difference for is there a difference for people who are adopted because their parents gave you up or for those people who, you know, come from a poor country and their parents, you know, may, maybe died or that kind of situation? I think that what's the great news of our time is that psychology uh, and the healing arts are finally discovering that pretty much everything that happens to a human being when they're young uh, of a traumatic nature can lead to what's called a a rupture or a trauma. And those are lodged in the body. This is why, you know, psychotherapy hasn't worked for 60 years, because it's talk. It's in the head. It's a mental construct. It's memory and things like this. Whereas trauma is in the tissues of the body especially with a young, a young child. So science and psychology has now characterized a dozen or so of these types of traumas, and many of us walk around with them inside. There's, you know, we, they, they talk about uh, hysteric responses or psychopathic responses to things or people who sort of cringe and shy away and, and won't, can't be helped. And that's called a masochist response. And so we finally understanding this. And so in, in, in my case, the, the trauma was so early, it's, it's very deeply buried. So when I came home, I was very nonverbal. Uh, my mother, would, who adopted me, said, well, he's in, he's in his own world. You know, and I, I had to literally struggle my way out of that, a form of, really a form of autism. I had to struggle, you know, to the point where I can I can have long conversations today and look people in the eye. It was difficult to look people in the eye, you know, until really until in my thirties. So, you know, they talk about Asperger's syndrome and things like this. So the trauma that comes from someone from a war torn country will be different than the trauma that that is inside me, uh, and the trauma of a child that's abused when they're eight by relation. 
or a parent tells them that they love them one day and that they hate them the next day. That creates a different kind of a thing. And now in Silicon Valley, we've got this really bad situation of this what we call helicopter parenting or overparenting or dragon parenting where children are they come home with a 97% on a test and the parent says what what happened to the other 3% and that creates a what's called a rigid response and probably 3 quarters of the employees at Apple and Google are all rigids and they're ever striving for perfection and they can never reach it and it, it's a kind of traumatic response that, that creates a lack of empathy and uh, competitiveness. And so the good news, though, is finally uh, we're beyond Eckhart Tolle uh, just describing all this as the pain body, you know, one thing, one word. Now we can say so there's a dozen different flavors of pain body. And there are actual techniques for people to heal themselves if they have help ayahuasca being one, but with a lot of integration. But there's Vipassana yogas, there's, you know, all kinds of, of even deep meditations, uh, all kinds of techniques to work on, on deeply buried trauma, and most of them are nonverbal. Uh, but if humanity has found the tool, we, we won't have Donald Trump's or Adolf Hitler's in the future because we will ensure that our young, you know, or any other person that's abusive to others, because we'll, we will have ensured that if there's trauma introduced at a young age, it's, it's healed or worked on, and that we'll be better at parenting, better at raising our, our young, and not subject ourselves to the results of trauma later, you know. I've always had the philosophy that, you know, because most people who want to have children they usually end up with two on average at least in the western world and so i always had the philosophy that if everybody had one child and then adopted another then you could solve the problem with all these millions of children who who don't have any parents and are not living a very good life and i've been arguing with my wife that i i want to adopt but she's like scared to do it because uh for like like in your case like adopted children usually have issues later in life you know they feel sad that they you know they where are their real parents so we we're having constantly having this debate but i still think it would be a good idea if everybody did that i mean i'm talking about these children who have been abandoned not somebody who got pregnant and don't want it that's a different situation uh but i mean like in in the third world you know well, you know, we, we had good friends in New Jersey that uh, <clears throat> one of them was a specialist in teaching the deaf. And so they went to war-torn uh, Liberia in West Africa, and they found two deaf children. I think one was four and one was six, and they were in an orphanage and the worst conditions you can imagine. And they adopted them, and we met them about a year and a half in, and these were just regular kids. They were rambunctious, intelligent, learning fast. You know, little children are incredibly uh, resilient. And so from worst conditions, you you know, now they're teenagers, they're in high school. Uh, you know, they're in high school for the deaf. But they're both highly capable. And, <clears throat> you know, there may come a time as adults where they seek out their 
what happened, or they may feel some of that. But as kids, they're just kids become kids, and uh, in a very short period of time, uh, they adapt, and and that's a great hope for our our species. I, I think you're you're right to think of doing that. Uh, my scientific mentor and friend Dave Deemer, he has they have one natural child, and they have a a child they adopted from Russia, from post-Soviet Russia. And I just was at his house yesterday, and she just passed her drive-in exam, and she's a soccer star, and she's great. Uh, there's not a single uh, issue, really, from that early that early conditioning. I guess it's important not to, like, treat your biological child different than the adopted one. You know, you just love them equally. Yeah, I think that's, and, and that would go for any situation, really. You know, if a child is favored over another, for whatever reason, it will create a traumatic response. No, because when I was 20, I backpacked uh, through Romania. In, and in those days, Romania was a bit worse off than it is today. It's gone a bit better. And there was lots of uh, uh, small children living on the streets. And there was one very cute little girl who, who kept, talking to me she followed me and talked to me because she knew English and after a while she just said please please can you t- just take me with you and uh, you know of course I couldn't do that I was only 20 but <laughs> I, I really wanted to but uh, I would have had problems in customs but uh, I really like always remember that that uh, I mean like uh, I wonder what happened to her but you know she just wanted to get out of there and just had a you know live somewhere else with somebody you know you know, maybe uh, that's your spiritual side coming out, and maybe the, the little girl's eyes were a message for you in your future that it's actually part of your destiny to help someone like her, you know? Yeah, it could be. I have to ask you also about your work at NASA, and uh, because recently, in the last couple of years, there's been this ridiculous thing all over the internet about that the earth is flat which i don't agree with at all but uh, every time you i don't do it so much because it's futile but every time you read about somebody who trying to convince these people that uh, the situation is different uh, you know they always you know you 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 state facts from nasa and they always say oh nasa is just they're just lying constantly lying but but my view of nasa is that it's not really like CIA or the Pentagon it uh, my view is that it's always been like a more like a open community kind of thing you know so what can you talk a bit about NASA as a place you know yeah it's an amazing group of people because it's not just the civil servants you know it's not just the uh, the people working directly for the government there are thousands I was a contractor uh, there's scientists at universities technologists young people involved. Uh, it's an amazing community of people who actually subject themselves to real measures, you know. So unlike, say, a so-called intelligence agency uh, like the CIA, which has failed so much, you know, they failed to predict the end of the Soviet Union or the beginning of the Gulf War, and, you know, they, their missions have mostly been failures, and they really, they shouldn't exist, I mean, in, in any kind of an objective thing. Uh, you know, view of the world. They're, they're not a contributor to society, really. But NASA has, it's in the public eye. If something blows up on launch, people are in front of committees. There's a lot of emotion. Uh, and that's what uh, Eisenhower, the president in the 50s, established NASA. 
he was a general in World War II. Of course, he was the commander-in-chief of uh, Allied forces, really, in World War II. So when he established NASA, he said, it shall not be under the military. It should be a public agency, accountable to the public, visible to the public. And that's what it's been ever since. So what you see is what you get. I mean, there's no... Uh, the, the, the generally, what happens when I when I find people who make statements like that, or anyone proposing or passing on conspiracy theory, I just let them disqualify themselves. You know, they discredit themselves by their lack of clear thinking. Often they become very offensive verbally. Uh, there's a, there's a veiled sense of bigotry uh, within what they're saying. And they immediately get discredited, and I won't do anything with them from that point on. Because you have to self-select. You can't, you know, and these are some friends that you are know, believing in chemtrails and things like this. And if they keep persisting on that, and they say, look, you know, uh, I don't pass on uh, stories about the Holocaust is fake. Because that's deeply offensive to people. And what you're saying here is deeply offensive to me. So you're going to lose me as a friend, which they have, you know. Uh, and also, I, I would have less respect for them. To, they have, you know, clouded judgment. You know, you have to be careful. So it has to stop somewhere. I think the best proof is that, you know, considering it's like such a public uh, entity and, uh, you know, they release everything all the time and so many people work there, you know how difficult it would be to make sure all of those people stick to the same lie, you know, <laughs> I mean, people can't even keep quiet when they cheat on their wife, you know, like it gets online. So how could they be? So, I mean, they must be master liars, you know, so I think that is the best proof that it's not like that. And of course, the burden of proof, what Carl Sagan said, uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So somebody who's making an audacious claim has to come up with even more convincing evidence. And until they do, give them, give them no attention. One of the great, in a sense, promoters of, of all this, these nonsensical ideas was a, uh, a radio guy called Art Bell in the 1990s. He started a program called Coast to Coast. And he would feature these people and that's what helped a lot of them, like Henry Hoagland, the face on Mars guy. or He helped them get started because he gives them a huge audience of ill-informed, you know, impressionable people late at night. And I remember being on the phone with him at one point because I was going to be on the show. Uh, Terrence McKenna used to always be on the show, but Terrence McKenna is not in the, the same class of, of, as these conspiracy theory jokers. You know, I had great respect for Terrence McKenna. Um, but at one point, uh, I was going to come on the show that night, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I just got new NASA imagery of the rock outcrop that this guy Hoagland says is a face on Mars. And it's obviously just a rock outcrop. And I have to have Hoagland on because I have to take him down. And I said, Art... You get, them build, you, you get them building them up, and you get them again coming down. You know, he, he gets airtime. And Art said, that's the name of the game. So even Art, who is this great voice of questioning in the middle of the night, these people, he didn't believe any of this stuff. You know, he was just filling airtime. 
Now, what happened to Art Bell two years later was this guy who'd been on the show, and this is a good lesson for anyone listening here about the danger of conspiracy, conspiratorial thinking and nonsense thinking. There was a guy on the show who was talking about a, a comet in the Hale-Bopp, a comet called Hale-Bopp, that behind it was a spaceship, and that the spaceship was the second coming. And so he's on Art Bell's show, and these people in a mansion in San Diego are listening, and they decide on the evening of the comet that they're all going to drink poison Kool-Aid, and 39 people are found dead the next day at, at this mansion. So Art hears about this, has this guy back on the show, and the guy just made, just uh, basically admitted that I made it all up. And Art, in the, in the great fit of self-control, of anger actually, uh, turned to him and he said, then your blood is, their blood is on your hands as is it on mine, sir. And Art actually quit the show for a while because he said, why am I giving you people airtime? People have died because of this nonsense. What am I doing? You know, and here's a man with a, with a consciousness right in the center of promulgating this nonsense and realizing that he helped cause the death of 39 probably innocent people that were being misled. And nobody goes to prison for that. You know, in the future, maybe they should. But, but this is an example of a warning. So we did a, for this flat earth nonsense, uh, we actually used the same logo art as, as, as you have on your website here uh, for our show. We did a panel at the Symbiosis Conference, uh, and it was a fake flat earth panel because we were going to parody a serious flat earth panel that was done at the Lightning in a Bottle Festival in 2016 that people walked out of. It was really ridiculous. It was offensive. It was actually, I think, anti-Semitic at one point, you know. Uh, and, and Lightning in a Bottle retracted uh, that panel in a sense publicly apologized for having that at their festival, which is, says a lot for Lightning in a Bottle. So the next year, the Symbiosis Festival, uh, which was in the fall, this is the fall of 2016, decided to have this parody. So we had myself as I, I was playing this a comic scientist in a white lab coat, and we had J.P. Sears, who's a well-known internet comedian, and we had Kumare, who stars in the film about himself as a sort of fake guru called Kumare. We had Eric Davis, who's a well-known writer, doing the uh, the emceeing. And half the kids that came to this flat earth thing thought it was serious, you know, at that point. But we broke we broke the seriousness, we broke the illusion partway through when I did my thing with my flip charts. And you can find this on YouTube, just flat earth panel symbiosis, uh, Bruce Damer. Uh, it's quite a thing to watch, because at one point we handed out a thousand tortillas and the audience were winging tortillas at us. They were there like bullets, believe me. Uh, but we, we basically said any conspiracy theory, any nonsense like that is now open season for comedy. So we, we will send you up the river. And that's, that's a tool against this kind of thinking is comedy. You know, hence, hence the comedic treatment of the Trump administration. It's one of the only things the country seems to be able to do is use comedy against nonsense. 
the logo for the podcast is 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 a woodcut that I've always loved for many years. That's why I picked it when I eventually decided to have what logo I should have. And it's called the Spiritual Pilgrim, and it represents you know somebody who who is alive but goes to the other side. At least for me, and it's a spiritual pilgrim. And then uh, after the podcast got going, this flat earth, and some people I've noticed think it's is proof of the flat earth earth uh, yeah so but i'm hoping it goes away so I don't, people don't think i support it but uh, so it's actually the spiritual pilgrim aspect of that's the reason for the logo yeah it's beautiful it's it, it's beautiful actually and it, it it touches my heart because it's a it's a he's a liminalist he's going between the the world of the farms and the, the tree and the lakes and the fishes and he's looking to the other and he's he's quite happy to be in both worlds. Well, let's go from conspiracy to fact then, uh, because uh, they, there's this, you know, conspiracists who believe we didn't land on the moon, they always say, well, why didn't we go back? But I want to ask, uh, you know, um, is the reason why we haven't been back to the moon so so much since we went there? Because it's not... You know, being there, done that, it's not that interesting, and the focus is Mars? Yeah, I think that what what happened, uh, uh, NASA was already getting defunded as of 1968, so even before Neil Armstrong you know, sat down on the moon, they were already getting their funding slashed, and programs were being canceled, and by the mid-70s, they'd even uh, canceled the uh, Saturn V, which is now they're having to recreate, which is this ironic, the, the finest rocket ever designed. Uh, so what happens in, in all this is objective shift, and so the moon was sort of a done thing. The public was losing interest, and the public's interest matters to NASA. This is a public institution. And so the shuttle was proposed, and the shuttle was ended up being way too big and complex and expensive to fly, but it was an amazing machine. But all the resources went into the shuttle program, and the shuttle had, of course, two fatal accidents, um, possibly preventable, uh, really traumatic for the agency. But the shuttle met its mission. You know, after 30 years, it had built a space station, it had launched the Hubble telescope, and it was the most incredible machine. Uh, so winds change and shift and it depends on whose whose congressional district is being funded to build hardware you know it's quite political so if a congressman is very powerful and wants a program because it gets jobs in their district which get them elected then they're going he's going to push the program it doesn't the science or the technologies can be second to that so the moon uh interestingly enough is and, and a target again. I mean, the Chinese have landed their their lander and now a small rover. They have a robust uh, moon program to land to do sample return. Uh, there's the the SpaceX lunar prize as well for independent people to land vehicles on the moon. So it's a it's a target that's doable. Uh, getting getting a six wheels on the ground on the moon is a lot easier to do than Mars uh, because you don't have a you know six-month transit time and a big atmosphere to get through and to decelerate in. So it's become kind of an interesting technology platform. I did years of work on lunar rover simulation and lunar-based construction ideas with Raytheon and NASA headquarters and 
I, I hired and talked to a lot of Apollo astronauts, including uh, Jack Schmidt, who drove the lunar roving buggy for 30 kilometers, you know, uh, on the last mission. And I determined for myself that the moon is, is truly a harsh mistress. It's a difficult place to build habitation. It's thermal cycling. It's got dust issues. It's got radiation issues. It doesn't have really accessible water or resources. And the moon's actually a bad place to stage anything. Uh, it, stuff will just break. Um, so you have to go farther afield. So I've been working for decades on asteroid capture and mining techniques. And finally, three years ago, in partnership with Peter Janiskins at the SETI Institute, who's a he's an asteroid astronomer, uh, and Julian Knott, who's a balloon designer, probably the world's premier balloon designer, we came up with this craft we call Shepard Miner. And, and what it does is it's a spacecraft that can envelop an asteroid in a balloon, introduce an atmosphere, and change the dynamics, like stop the tumbling, and steer and, and drive the asteroid all without touching it, because these are very delicate consolidated rubble piles. And why would you want to move an asteroid? Well, if it's 50% water and it's a thousand tons and you move it into orbit around the moon, you can fractionate out the water into tanks and split it and turn it into fuel. So you can build gas stations. You can pull the carbon compounds out. You can melt an asteroid down into a biosphere and introduce uh, biology. So you have this globule inside a, a balloon in space that can be harvested. And you can even pull nickel out using gas mining all without grinding. And it, when we came up with this about three years ago, we looked at each other and said, this is potentially the solution to many of the major problems to move civilization off the Earth and give us a base in the solar system. It solves all the major problems. And so we put it to NASA for funding, got high scores, but didn't get funded. So I did a TEDx talk to give it away to humanity. Uh, and I'll talk to anyone. It's, this has been sent to Elon Musk. Uh, I will eventually talk to the Chinese space program. It needs someone to say, we're going to do 15 years of, of tests and demonstration flights of, of small versions of Shepard, and then we're going to go and capture an asteroid and move it around. You know, because you're making small worlds, planetesimals, out of the very things that were raining down on the Earth that, that gave us the ingredients for life are these asteroids and, and little particles, too. So we're kind of going back to our roots and the origin of life. If we learn how to manage those and make small worlds out of them, that's the solution to allowing Gaia, if you will, or the biosphere to reproduce and so that it can have more life in a place than just at the bottom of a gravity well of Earth, which is a tomb, ultimately. So maybe it's a purpose for humanity to allow the biosphere to make another. If they ever build a habitat on the moon so anybody could move and live there flat earth people should get like half price discount on on rent yes <laughs> yeah and i think that in truth uh, uh, the moon's a bad place to live and so is mars uh the surface of mars has got a lot of problems as we saw in the movie martian the martian 
the best place to live in space is going to be habitats that are clean, uh, can be built in extended sizes, res well-resourced, tons of energy falling on them. Uh, that That's always, if you want millions of people living in space, it's going to be habitats constructed in, in space. I had the guy who wrote that book, The Martian, on the podcast a few years ago, actually. But I have a question. Uh, is Mars the only planet, I mean, if you forget about the technology of time and travel, you know, is that the only planet that you can, like, go to? Or is there other planets in our solar system? Because I know, like, gas planets you can't land on. You can go to moons of the gas planets. So we're involved in a mission to fly through an icy jet a plume coming out of the south pole of Enceladus, which is a an ice-covered moon of Saturn. Uh, we're flying through this jet to see if we can find signs of life that are in the ocean underneath the ice. We don't think we're going to see it, but uh, those places are hard to get to. They're ultra-cold. I mean, Titan has hydrocarbon oceans, right? It, oceans of methane, I mean, it, it's a really difficult place. You could land there. Uh, Venus is ultra hot, so hundreds of degrees on the surface in a high pressure atmosphere, and spacecraft have only lasted a short period of time on the surface of Venus, so you can't go there. So you're absolutely right that Mars has what you might call clement conditions. You know, it's it's always freezing. Uh, the problem is you've got an atmosphere that's almost a vacuum, and you have dust, which is going to get be a big problem for most equipment, but. You know, Mars can be visited by people. I can't remember what it's called, but, you know, like, first you have to get out of the solar system, and then you have this, like, comet, like, uh, rock, full of rock. Is it the Kuiper Belt or something? Uh, like, lots of dust and things, So, and that's a huge distance to travel through that. And then after that, there's basically nothing for an extremely long uh, stretch uh, until you reach the next place. And that, you know, that emptiness and uh, it takes, you know, I think, isn't it like one of the voyagers has starting to enter one of those places and it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, Pioneer 10 and Voyager have gone through what's called the bow shock uh, or uh, sometimes called the heliopause. And it's it's a place where the sort of galactic wind or the movement of material through interstellar space uh, overcomes the force of the Earth's solar wind. So it's passed through that. So it's in sort of deeper space. And yet there's still lots of objects out there that orbit the sun. They think as many as a trillion comets that are left over from the formation of the solar system. These comets don't get into the inner solar system, so we don't see them uh, as with big long tails. So... So Voyager would have to get through that, and then this long distance interstellar space to, you know, we're talking light years, many, many light years, uh, many hundreds of thousands or millions of years at their slow speeds. So the best hope we have for understanding all this stuff is the uh, exoplanets. You know, tomorrow there's going to be a press conference where I think NASA's going to announce that, you know, the slight spectral wiggle of, of a planet shows you what the atmosphere might be made of as it crosses over its uh, across its parent star and they're going to announce something of maybe the detection that some of these exoplanets might have 
liquid water on the surface, which is completely expected. Uh, and then there was the announcement last month of seven Earth-sized planets orbiting a red dwarf star, which is pretty remarkable, you know. Do you think there's like intelligent life in this universe, or do you think that it's maybe it's only in like an, a, another dimensional universe? In, if you think about the multiverse kind of concept, I think that then I'm going back to our work on origin of life. We only have one data point, uh, so what we can do is it's like a microscope. If we can determine how fast and how likely it is for life, say microbial life, to get started on a planet that has liquid water and rock, rocky surfaces and rocky uh, landscapes and weather, etc., etc. If we can determine that that's relatively, it could be quite common, then there'd be a lot of microbial life, uh, simple life, uh, in the universe. Then a proportion of the planets die, uh, and life is unable to sort of get its its hand on the thermostat, or the oceans all dry up, and there's nothing you can do. So there's probably a huge proportion of life-bearing worlds where it's just simple forms of life that are hidden in the crust, in wet rock. Um, then there might be uh, vastly fewer where uh, life, in the terms of these little communities, can survive for billions of years, then vastly fewer where they become multicellular and complex and vastly fewer where they survive long enough to develop nervous systems, intelligence, and, and to be able to even talk about that. So I think that it's that intelligent life most certainly exists, but I think we can start getting an idea, maybe adding some terms to the Drake equation of Frank Drake, that, that intelligent life that's actually willing to fund activities through language and through science and technology is extremely rare. Uh, there aren't that many examples. Uh, and that, unfortunately, they're separated in time and space, so uh, having contact, unless you believe that, you know, uh, in visionary states you're meeting aliens all the time, but we don't know that for sure, physical presence of, of an intelligence coming to go, boldly go and say hello and find us is probably so rare, you know. But if the chance is like one in a trillion, it's still like a zillion worlds. So it's still like probably, a, it could be, I mean, statistically, even if it's high, the universe is so big that it could probably be several such planets. Yeah, I agree. And the, then again, the problem is time and distance. Uh, so they have a, a flowering of their civilization uh, three billion years ago and they lay their planet to waste and are never heard from again. You know, so this is why the SETI Institute are looking for signals, directed signals, uh, transmissions to find any, uh, because they may be from extinct civilizations. Most of them may be extinct because the, the problem of long-term sustainability is probably another huge hurdle that Certainly humanity, as, as you pointed out earlier in the podcast, is we're, we're just barely grappling with, hey, we have to become long-term sustainable. What does that mean? You know, If we don't get that, then we won't be here either. Because even if you saw, even if you can build a spaceship that can go to the other side of the universe in seconds, you still have to 
come to terms with the psychological problem, even if you freeze yourself on that. But, you know, as soon as you leave, you know, you're not going to see anybody again, you know, because of time and age and all this stuff. Uh, so whoever does that, you know, they'll have to abandon everything, you know. So it's a psychological issue as well. You're absolutely right. And and because we live such short periods of time, you know, we, we're actually relatively short-lived, whereas, say, another intelligent species might be more colonial, kind of like the a slime mold or the microbial communities we were talking about earlier, uh, that, that are very long-lived. I mean, fungal fungal rings can be 30,000 years old. It's the same structure, really, you know, the same mycelia. Uh, but things that are extremely long-lived and extremely colonial may never develop technology. It may develop sentience, but never develop technology because there's no reason for it, you know. So it, I think maybe short-lived crazy monkeys that we are, we, we make bus services and the Internet but we we can burn out quickly. We can burn through resources quickly, whereas you know an intelligent, multi-colonial hive being uh, just sits there chilling and saying, "Hey, isn't it a nice day?" Or it might get into a disagreement with itself, but it's it's not motivated to necessarily uh, uh, go and ask all these questions and and try to travel. I mean, what what motivation would you have to to travel? I have this theory that people are horrified when I say because they are so in love with the human race. But I always, I have this thing where I'm thinking, well, perhaps humans is not the end of evolution. So perhaps our purpose, like the thing you said about certain microbes helped others to reach the surface, surface, is that maybe if we should create artificial intelligence and maybe it will be like futuristic robots that are conscious that will populate the galaxy because they don't have those issues as we do. So maybe we're just one step in a longer evolution. But people don't like that because they think ro- they see robots always in Hollywood. You know, they're always evil. But and you know, that's a a question that the SETI Institute people consider that maybe they're going to contact machine intelligence before organic or some kind of merger of the two. What I what I tend to do is I'm 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 a technologist, so I'm very skeptical about technology because I see how fragile it is. So, for example, all the people talking about AIs, or they're talking about Terence, Terence McKenna, you might know about, uh, used to talk about AIs and singularities and things like this. Uh, And I used to stay up half the night with him to explain to him why I thought that was just nonsense thinking. And, And at one point I convinced him, you know, by dawn I'd convinced Terence that the singularity is because I said, Terence, computers, your Mac sitting over there is done, is developed this way. It's very fragile. It has these thin pipes. It's only creating a simulation for you. This glass of water, or in his case, it'd be, you know, something else sitting in front of us is running in parallel, stochastically, probabilistically. It's out computing that computer and every other computer on the planet, this glass of water is, in terms of what's going on, in terms of interactions. And and computers as they are now are super fragile. So if you go into a big Unix cluster, a big supercomputer, and you just go into one of the machines that's running some Linux install, you find the same crappy, simple term 
applications uh, that were in the 70s. You know, just as if you found DOS underneath things, you'd be horrified. But it, it's in a sense, all this stuff is there, and it's not robust at all. I mean, uh, uh, an entire server array can go down just because one application is writing a log file that, that fills the hard drive or the, the RAM dr drive. You know, this stuff is just, it's just really crap. Uh, it's not well architected. It's just thrown together. It's not robust. Uh, so the internet needs to be constantly hand tuned and fixed all the time. So we're, you know, we've just been able to make cars that can actually detect the edges of roads and vehicles in front of them. You know, these are these are really basic functions of biology that we're just getting now with with 50 years of microelectronics and programming. This stuff is hard, and AIs there aren't any AIs. They're just clever algorithms. I mean, they do neat and useful things, but, you know, you can't throw them a situation and they can't reason their way out of it. It's just a bunch of algorithms. And so it, I'm, I'm a skeptic when it comes to uh, technology being anything but a handmaiden and one that needs constant care and feeding for a long time. Maybe like an advanced technology, instead of them being the ones populating the galaxy maybe they can invent or create a life that can you know maybe they're like just a stepping stone it's possible but i think for us i mean we could certainly genetically engineer people and give them capabilities that we don't have but i think we're such complex code you know we're 13 trillion cells you know 13 trillion years of of of, of universal evolution ironically uh I think we're as good as it's going to get uh, if we can, if we can uh, manage our psychology better, treat our children the best possible way we can, learn how to heal people, help them have healthy bodies, not expose them to uh, anxiety-producing and abusive media, which is all around the world now, which is traumatizing people. Uh, if we can give them the best society to live in, then we can really realize our potential, you know, in arts and science and spiritual, you name it, we can, there's so much capacity in, in human beings to do more. Uh, we don't need to look uh, to machines to, to do it necessarily. There are tools, but I think there's so much more, uh, uh, more goodness that can come out of human civilization. Before we finish, I, w I need to ask uh, one question because I'm a bibliophile. And I know you, you you curate the archives of Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna. Can you talk a bit about what what those archives are? And also, I always thought that McKenna's library burnt down twice. Yeah, you're completely correct. Um, he lost his books in the Oakland Hills fire. I think it was in the early 70s. That was his young, young Terence 2000 alchemical texts. Uh, but then in 2007, you know, he had passed away and... 2000, uh, a fire raged through Pacific Grove and burnt down Esalen's office. And that's where his books and papers were stored. Uh, the same ones that we sat around in Hawaii years before. Uh, and I called up Lorenzo Haggerty, who runs the Psychedelic Salon podcast. And we'd already started to digitize uh, cassette tapes. Uh, Ralph Abraham had brought over the box of the trialogues tapes which we digitized and it was already going out through the salon podcast but i said to uh to lorenzo 
the elves have taken the incriminating evidence. They're after Terrence, and we have to fight back. And so we put out this call and got hundreds more cassette tapes to reconstruct Terrence, you know, from at least his voice for the next generation so people like yourself could hear him. Uh, and at the same time, I came into the only uh, cache of letters and documents uh, that was available that, that survived. Uh, Dennis has a journal and a few things uh uh, his brother Dennis McKenna, and I have this 15 years of letters and time waves stuff and whatever. Uh, but that's it. That's what survived of Terrence. Uh, with Tim Leary, he was a pack rat. He collected stuff since he was a kid because he knew he was going to be famous. So a vast archive existed of stuff. And I worked as aid, an agent for the his trust, for his family, for four or five years. And when the New York Public Library agreed to take the manuscript collection, they left all this other material, and that's what's here now. His books, his record collection, you know, the, the remnants of things, and the news archive, which is, you know, from 1956 up to 1996 of stories that were professionally clipped uh, by clipping services of every story about Tim, LSD, drugs, the counterculture, uh, scientific research, you name it, is here. And it's the whole history of that. Uh, so I'm trying to raise funds to, for the Internet Archive to scan these clippings. Uh, we've actually, I got, I finally got a vinyl turntable from Germany. I can listen to Tim's records, and these were, some of them are unique. I mean, some of them, they just don't exist anywhere. And you put them on, and you realize these were played at Millbrook, New York in the mansion that they lived in for several years. And and the, the books are marked up. Uh, there's Tim has written all over Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, and he's written everywhere Huxley writes brain, Tim has crossed it out and written mind, you know. And so it's it's beautiful stuff. I mean, it's physical artifacts from a really extraordinary time in history and a time that I just love to study as a scholar and uh, to touch. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have come into these artifacts. They sit next to hundreds of vintage computers in the DigiBarn Computer Museum where I've collected the history of computing from about 1900 uh, up through microcomputers, Cray supercomputers, Apple prototypes, you name it, is all there. It's the story of how our modern world came into being. And it's all, uh, it's all at damer.com, D-A- mer.com if people want to find all these sites. Maybe you shouldn't store all this stuff in California considering the fires that rage. Yeah, it's it's uh we we have earthquakes, we have floods and we have fires, but luckily it's secure here on this farm and I I get a lot of visitors and uh documentary film crews. William Shatner filmed here for 3 days and uh he, he's Captain Kirk of the original Star Trek. And he beamed me into the Cray supercomputer at one point, and I, I realized a childhood dream of getting beamed up or beamed down by Captain Kirk. So if people want to uh, uh, read your uh, your work or uh, find you online, where can they do this? It's uh, My name is Bruce Damer, D-A-M-E-R. I'm called Dr. Bruce in the festival circuit, but if you go to Damer dot com d-a-m-e-r dot com uh 
the links to the Diddy Barn, various collections and talks. I have a podcast called The Levity Zone, uh, which is full of talks and things that should make you smile, uh, hopefully. Uh, and you can find the science and everything uh, linked off there. It's just a page with a bio, uh, but it's all there. Cool. Thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's a wonderful thing you're doing, and uh, you're getting some really interesting guests, so I'm going to go back and listen to the next few. Go to damer.com if you want to check out his work. So now let's close this second and final part of my talk with Dr. Bruce Damer with some music by Mac Mangos. The name of the song is made up of some symbols that look like hashtags, but it is also called track one. And it's from the album Insomnia. Go to macmangos.bandcamp.com. That's M-C-M-A-N-G-O-S.bandcamp.com. If you like what you hear. And if you want to support the podcast, give it a nice review on iTunes. And if you have something you ponder about, drop me a line and I might bring up the topic in a future episode. All the links and contact forms can be found on naturalbornalchemist.com and you can also send in a donation if you feel inclined to do so. Regardless, thank you all for listening. Next week we are going to dive into the wonderful world of Buddhism. Freedom is in the mind. Mm -hmm.